Well, it's good to be on this side of the room this morning. Uh, I always enjoy the opportunity to share God's Word, whether it's in a little classroom or in this setting. Uh, God is good. Amen? Amen. My name is Wayne Smith. Uh, I work at Masters Academy, which is a ministry of our church. We meet right here on this campus, and we are in open enrollment season. So if you know someone, or if you have a child, a grandchild, uh, that's wanting a private Christian education, where we do not apologize for being American citizens, we do not apologize for standing on God's truth, we do not apologize for protecting the unborn, uh, we do not apologize for uh, speaking the truth, uh, and in the midst of that, we actually teach math and science <laughs> and history. Uh, and I'd like to think that we do it a uh, very, very good job at it. So uh, there's actually scholarships. There are, there are some tax-deferred scholarships that are available that we have access to. Uh, so a Christian education can be affordable for a lot of people. So come and talk to us. Uh, but I would ask for your prayers because there are some elements in Florida that are trying to prevent us from accessing those scholarship funds because we're Christian, because of our stance. And some of you might have seen the newspaper article that came out um, about four or five weeks ago, and they actually quoted me. They mentioned our school, and they just hammered us and dozens of other schools across Florida because we stand on God's Word. And we're not going to stop standing on God's Word. So pray for us that God helps us. Amen. Amen. Um, back in the 1980s, a South African professor wrote a book. Now, I'm sure you've never met a South African you didn't like. I haven't either. Uh, wrote a book called The Eclipse of Christ in Eschatology. And the reason why he wrote the book, because there were some of us, and I say us, there were some of us who were sign seekers and date setters when it came to the end times. And I was a young college student at the time. I was studying for the ministry, and, and I got wrapped up in this, in this end times gazing. And I realized that I probably shouldn't be so outspoken about it one day when I heard somebody quoting me, Wayne Smith, saying the world's going to end in 1988. <laughs> but why did I say that? Or why did I think that? Well, there was a book out called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Take Place in 1988. I'm not kidding. Okay, I'm not going to make up any of this. And, and so there was this group of Christians who, who, who were watching the signs, who were setting the dates, and, and, and you know, they were, we were just convinced that Jesus was coming back soon. Well, where did that come from? Well, there's a passage in Matthew 24 where Jesus talks about apocalyptic, apocalyptic things. Personally, I think Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, some people say that Jesus was talking about something far forward than that, maybe a mix of both. But in that passage, Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the budding of the fig tree. And he says, when you see the budding of the fig tree, you know that fruit's coming. And in the same generation, when you see these signs, you know the end is coming. Well, what were those signs? 
So Bible scholars in the mid-1900s were studying that passage and looking at the signs and, and thinking, you know what that fig tree is? It's actually the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel was formed in 1948. And if you take a generation of 40 years, then 1988. You get the logic? Jesus is coming back in 1988. And, 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 and then they started looking at vultures. And they started looking at Chinese army that was going to come and look for wives and fight in the, in the Battle of Armageddon. I'm not making any of this up. And uh, Henry Kissinger. I'm not kidding you. Bless the guy. But somebody took his name and added numerical values to his name and it came up to what? 666. And everything started coming together. And there was this group of Christians that were so convinced that Jesus was coming back in 1988. And the guy that wrote the book actually repredicted. He said, no, it's not coming in 1988. It's maybe coming in 1989. And then that didn't happen. And, and, and then we started focusing on Y2K. And Y2K, I mean, the books came out and the Christians were writing about it. Surely this was going to be the end times now, the end of the 6,000 years. So I want to show you a slide. And uh, this comes from a, a guy called Clarence Larkin. And Clarence Larkin was born in the UK in the mid-1800s. He moved out to the States. He was an Episcopal preacher, and then he became a Baptist preacher. And I've still got a couple of his books. Um, he... Uh, developed a school of thinking called dispensational truth. I'm not sure if he came up with it or if he was part of the group. I'm not sure, but, but, but his book was called Dispensational Truth. Now, if you look at the arches, at the sixth arch, you might not be able to see it, but he's actually got the date there, 2000. Now, this is back in the early 1900s, Right? He is actually predicting that the world is going to end around 2000. The rapture is going to happen. Thousand-year millennial reign is going to happen. And, and, and the idea of dispensational truth is that there were three categories of 2,000 years. The first two arches represent from Adam and Eve to Abraham, 2,000 years. I think it's much longer than that, but that's a different topic. And then from Abraham to Jesus was 2,000 years. And then from Jesus to roughly around 2,000 would be those last 2,000 years. And so if you take Clarence Larkin and the 1988 thing and the Y2K, I mean, people were convinced that Jesus was coming back by the end of 2000. There was actually a group of Christians that sold up everything. They went to Israel because they wanted to be there when Y2K happened and Jesus was coming back. So why do I tell you all of this? Well, we are going to read a few passages out of the book of Revelation. And the reason why Adria Koenig wrote his book, The Eclipse of Christ in Eschatology, because the study of eschatology is a study of end times. And the danger for us is when we are sign watchers and date setters. By the way, my pendulum has swinged all the way to the other side now. When we are sign watchers and date setters, there is a danger that we are going to miss Jesus in reading Revelation. Because we're looking at the beasts and the horns and the heads and, and the fire and the scroll and the plagues, and we're trying to figure that all out and try and 
I looked this up this week. There are some Christians that are now saying, this coronavirus, that's it. That's a plague in Revelation. Here we go. And so as we read Revelation, I don't want you to miss Jesus. But the second thing that makes us look silly. Seriously. When the world that's already cynical about us is wanting a reason of hope, and we give them vultures in Israel and Henry Kissinger, it makes us look silly. It really does. I'm not saying don't watch the signs. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying don't get excited. I think Jesus is coming back soon. Hallelujah, I'm ready. Don't. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying when, you, when you're sharing your hope of faith in Christ, be careful how you also wrap in this whole end time stuff. So my pendulum has swung, and I'm all the way on the other side now. Um, in fact, I was sharing this with some of our students this week, and the one young lady in the class says, said to me, so have you got any opinion? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> in fact, I told them I am a pan-millennialist. And I want to tell you that pan-millennialists are right. In fact, seriously, hang on. When, when you and I stand in heaven one day, you are going to come up to me and you're going to say, Wayne, you were right. Because the pan-millennialist says that it's going to pan out just as God told us. Just, just as God had decided. And God is going to work it out, right? All right, that's a long introduction. So our, our topic here is a table fit for a king. And there is a beautiful verse in Revelation 19, verse 9. But in order to set the scene for that, I want to read from chapter 8, chapter, I mean chapter 4, 5, and 7. So if you're following with me in the Bible, I'm going to move around and I'll direct you as we, as we go. Or you can uh, watch the screen. Um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked. Now, whenever you read the words after something, you always have to go back and say, well, after what? Well, God had given John uh, letters to write, messages to write to churches in Asia. Uh, by the way, these dispensational guys actually take those seven churches in Asia and they slot them into seven phases of human history. I'm not sure if there's any merit in that, but anyway. Um, so, so John has written to the seven churches of Asia, and now the angel says to John, John, come here. I want to show you something. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Wouldn't it be cool if God said that to you? Wherever you are in life, he said, come, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Verse 2, and at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Verse 6, and therefore the throne, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Just let those words sink in. Holy, holy, holy. Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Go to chapter 5 and verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Did you miss Jesus there? I hope you didn't. Because if you're reading this in, the, in a time of devotion, I would encourage you to just pause there. There are three amazing images of Jesus in those two verses. Did you see them? The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion. He's powerful. He'll fight for you. He's the root of David. Did you see that in that verse? The king, the lion, the messianic lion. But he's also the slain lamb. Three beautiful images of Christ right there in the midst of all of this imagery. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. At this point in your reading, rather than trying to figure out who the four living creatures are, you might just want to fall prostrate before God and just worship. Go to chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and even people from Pathway Church, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their, ha in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that good? Man, that's cool. John is seeing this amazing vision of heaven. And yes, there's imagery. And yes, there's, there's strange things that John is going to see. And, and, and there's going to be a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And on and on. And horses and the colors of horses and swords and plagues. And then we get to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? The church. Who is the church? We are. John is seeing a vision of what is called the marriage feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper. And we don't know if this is figurative or literal, whether we can actually sit around a table and celebrate in this great wedding banquet, or if it's just going to be a celebration around the throne. But John has this image of this feast, the celebration. Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know that you've been invited? Do you know that you have a seat at the table that's fit for a king. In John's vision, he saw a multitude praising God, about to enter into this wedding feast with the Lamb, literally a, a marriage supper. And this concept of this marriage supper and what led up to it is really best understood within the context of the ancient wedding process. So it starts off with a wedding contract. Probably signed between parents. Parents of the bride and parents of the groom get together and they'll sign a contract. And during this time period, it's called the betrothal period. And that's the period that Joseph and Mary find themselves in when Mary is told that she is going to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And then the, the, the second phase of that is the wedding procession and the wedding feast. I mean the actual wedding, the ceremony. And uh, there's a parable in Matthew 25 that Jesus talks about this, where there would be this procession through towns and villages, especially if they were small villages, the people would come out, and it would be the bridegroom and his family, or, or, or his friends, and they would make their way, way through the town, and the bride would be ready, waiting for him at her home, and he would go and get her and take her to his home or his father's home, and they would be, and they would be married. And then the third phase is the wedding feast. Now, in those days, the wedding feast could last three or four days. So it's understandable that sometimes supplies ran out, which is where Jesus found himself when he began his ministry at a wedding in Canaan, and the wine had run out. Now, that's an image of our relationship with Christ. Because the contract is Christ coming to earth and us accepting him as our Lord and Savior then the processional part is, 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 is our growth and our entry into heaven. And then you and I are going to enjoy the presence of Almighty God. And you and I, however it might look, are going to enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. Do you know that you've been invited to that feast? 
Do you appreciate this morning that you have a seat at that table? It started off in, in Revelation 4.1 when God saying through the angel, John, come, come, come follow, come. Come trust in me. Come see what I'm going to show you, what's going to take place. And it culminates in 19.9, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a beautiful picture in the Old Testament, a beautiful story that illustrates this. It's a story of a crippled. And his name is, here it is up on the screen. All right, try and pronounce that name. <laughs> All right, next slide is going to help you out. Mephibosheth. I'm not sure if I'm doing it correctly. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. So Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. Now, before we get to the passage, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you want to turn there. But before we get to the passage, I want to give you some history. Saul was the first king of Israel. David was anointed to be the second king of Israel. No relational connection between Saul and David. David joined Saul's army, became very, very successful. He became very popular, and Saul saw David as a threat. In fact, Saul starts going mentally emotionally insane, might be a bit too hard. He's unstable at best. And he tries to kill David on at least two occasions. Rather than stand his ground and fight, rather than David cause havoc in the kingdom, David chooses to just quietly leave. And David's on, on, on the run for years. Some Bible scholars think it's at least two. Some Bible scholars think it's probably around ten. And David's on the run. He's hiding in caves. He's, he's hiding in valleys and mountains. Well, Saul leads his army into battle against the Philistines. And Saul and David are killed. I mean, Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. Well, Jonathan's killed in battle. Saul falls on his spear and dies in battle. And with them dead, then David comes to the throne. And about 20 years pass, and David is a successful king, the nation is at peace, the region is at peace, and, and uh, David asks an interesting question about 20 years into his reign. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll read in from verse 1. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that's an interesting question. David has been king for about 20 plus years. We know that in some instances, especially if a king came to power through, through less than favorable circumstances, the king would probably eliminate the threats to his throne. Any relatives of the former king he would have exiled or jailed, imprisoned, executed. Is this what David's thinking? Even though he says, I, I, I want to show kindness to them. Is that really what he's meaning? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. 
And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is a still, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, that's an interesting thing, that the first thing out of Ziba's mouth, identifying who Jonathan's son is, is that he's crippled. Could it be that he's concerned that David means something negative? That he's trying to tell David, look, the guy's crippled. He's not a threat to you. Leave him alone. Verse 4, and the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil, at Lodabar, which was east of the Jordan River. But he's crippled. So how did this man become crippled? Well, the Bible actually tells us, we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in, his ha in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name is Mephibosheth. So we don't know more than that, but we assume that after Saul and Jonathan died fighting the uh, um, Philistines, news got to David that the king is dead. So David comes out of hiding. David goes through the process of starting to claim his throne. Word gets to Saul's family that David is rising. Maybe they've been poisoned with thoughts about David. Who is this king? What is he going to be like? Who is this guy? And so the nurse of young Mephibosheth picks him up and she runs. And maybe she trips and falls and falls on the little kid's two feet and he's crippled. So they send for him. Look at verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I wonder if Mephibosheth, who by this time is well into his 20s, maybe even into his early 30s, came fearful, wondering, what is the king going to do? And the king says, do not fear. Do you know that that is the most frequently spoken commandment out of Jesus' lips? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. But he's a cripple. And he's in the presence of the king and he doesn't know David. So maybe he was afraid. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show the kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He fell on his face before David. He referred to himself as a servant. He refers to himself as a dead dog. <laughs> what a horrible way to refer to himself. But the king means him no harm. The king intends to treat him like his own son. The king will restore to him in some way 
what the enemy or his difficulties in life have taken from him, and the king will seat him at his own table. Do you realize you've been invited to that table? Two more verses out of chapter 9, verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I know it's hard for us to wrap our mind around the concept of being joint heirs with Jesus. But we are. And we're like his son. We're like his daughter. God's son and daughter. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Just as David sought somebody from Saul's home to show love and kindness to, for centuries God has been seeking us, been seeking out humans, been reminding humans, reminding us, you're invited. You're invited to my table. You're invited to the feast. You're invited to take a seat. You're invited to join my family. And we might think, well, I'm crippled. I've been crippled by sin. I've been crippled by abuse. I've been crippled by my own choices that I make in life. And God is saying, you're invited. You're invited. Don't be afraid. Well, I've got doubts. God says, bring those doubts. I've got questions. God says, I can handle your questions. God says, I'm not perfect. He says, okay, you'll be a perfect fit. Come. Come and find out that the king means you no harm. The ministry of Jesus is full of stories where Jesus ate at people's tables. One incident really turned the religious world upside down. Early in Jesus' ministry, he had a couple of followers already. He walks up to a tax collector's table, one of the scourges of society. Then people didn't want to hang around tax collectors. And Jesus said, not only are you going to be my follower, but I'm coming to your house for dinner. So Matthew invites his sinful friends and the religious people get mad with Jesus. But those are the kinds of, Jesus, kinds of people around Jesus' table, right? And there's story after story after story that Jesus is eaten around tables where people at the table are questionable in character and conduct. I want to highlight just, just one. The last meal that Jesus has with his followers is on the beach. In fact, it was a sunrise breakfast. And think about who was at that breakfast. It was his disciples. It was a small knit group. Some of the disciples who could not pray with Jesus during his most desperate hours of anguish are invited to the breakfast. Some of those disciples who could not have the courage to go and stand at the cross and see Jesus being crucified. We're invited to the breakfast. And even that one that denied him multiple times is invited to the breakfast. So we have a table that's set here. 
And let's, let's try and imagine, and I'm almost done, so just hang with me. Let's, let's try and imagine that this is a huge table and lots of chairs. And let's, let's go back to David and the palace. Who would, who would be around this table? Well, there would be David and Bathsheba, right? But you know that they did some naughty things together. But they're invited to the table. And as we look around the table, we see Amnon. Do you know what he did to his sister? He sexually assaulted his sister. But he's invited to the table. And then there's Absalom. And there's Absalom who, about two years later, sent his servants to go and kill his brother, Amnon to revenge the sexual assault of their sister. And then years later, Absalom would rise up and actually force his father out of the kingdom. But yet he's invited to the table. And then there's Tamar, who was sexually assaulted by her brother, and she's carrying the scourge, and she's invited to the table. There's Solomon, <laughs> who when he grows up and he would have all the woman and all the wealth that any man could ever want to imagine in their most diverse and perverted mind, looks back on his life and says it's a waste. He's invited to the table. Let's fast forward to Jesus' time. There's Nicodemus, <laughs> who couldn't figure out that Jesus was actually the Messiah, even though he was well-schooled in the faith. There's a woman caught in adultery. She's invited to the table. How about Zacchaeus, the short little tax man? He's invited to the table. Paul, the persecutor of Christians, come. Come to the table. Are you at this table? Adulterers, liars, thieves, addicts, scoundrels, the self-righteous, come. Come. Maybe you've limped through life and you've struggled through life. And think for a moment that that table is filled with people and they're having a good time and... They're making a noise and they're enjoying each other and they hear this noise and it's... And, and that table represents the church. And so what do they do when, when the cripple approaches? Do they, do they close ranks and say, you're not one of us? No, I hope not. I hope not. I hope they'll, hope they'll pull out a chair and say, come and sit. Because we're all cripples in some way. We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes. We're all invited to the table. But don't get me wrong here, and I'll make an important point, and then we're done. Okay? 
Jesus never meant to leave us as cripples and adulterers at the table. Amen. He's there to transform us and change us and turn us into his likeness. So we can skip through life, even if we're walking with a limp. Because when we get to heaven, there's no more limping. Amen? Amen. He will make a way for you. Why? Because he's the way maker. He's the miracle maker. He shines light in the darkness. So we're going to sing a song in a minute. And if God has been touching your life and you know that you're a cripple spiritually, socially, mentally, emotionally, and you need God to touch your life, then deal with it. Deal with Him. Talk to Him. Right here, right now. Maybe you're a Christian already and, you've still, and you're still struggling with stuff inside your life and, you're, and, and you just feel handicapped. Offer it to the Lord. Help Him. Let him transform you. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so powerful. Pastor Randy prayed with us before the worship service in the green room that your word doesn't return void. In other words, Lord, your word accomplishes what it sets out to do, and your word has been heard by us this morning. I pray that you would give us the courage to respond. The altars are open if the Lord leads you to come and pray. Let's stand together and worship. Miracle work, promise keeper, light in the dark. 
quiet moment, reflect on those words. Maybe for years you've thought there wasn't a way to the table. Maybe your doubts about God and Christianity have just plagued you. He wants to make a way. Maybe there's something you've stumbled over for years and years. You thought there's no hope. He wants to make a way. Maybe there's a relationship with a family member that you think is, is just irreparable. He can make a way. Whatever it is, there's place for you at the King's table. Amen. 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 Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much. Even when we were crippled in our spirit and bent on sinning against you, you loved us and died for us. And Lord, we cannot, we cannot fathom how we can ever balance the scale, pay back what we owe you. And you don't ask us to give, to give you anything in repayment except just to come and sit at your table. Thank you for that invitation. Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we all are invited. We thank you for that. Encourage us this week. Remind us constantly, Lord, that, that you are with us. And if there's any, yeah, this morning that's still limping through life, Lord, because of sin, stuff going on in their life, damaged emotions and memories, bring healing, I pray. Continue to strengthen and bless our church. And go with us into this day, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.